0: I'm Mike Gillis. And I'm Casey Doran. And this is Radio vs. the Martians. I'm I'm nervous, Mike. Nervous. N- I'm nervous. Uh, not because I'm turning forty this year. I'm f- I'm I'm fine about that. Uh, as you may know, for the past couple of years, I've told people when I've invited them to my birthday party that I've am it's going to be my fortieth birthday. But I've been doing it for like three years now. So oh, really? I've effectively fooled people into thinking that I'm already forty. This is the real, the real 40. one. Forty. Yes. Yeah. No, I'm not nervous about that at all. I'm totally fine. I mean... It's, it's a big step, number, though. One step close to the grave. It's, it's all right. It feel the same as the same, same feeling as the last one.
1: It feels different than, like,
0: 37, though. <laughs> sure. But like I said, I've been preparing myself. And that's not what I'm nervous about. I'm nervous because we are coming up on the premiere of Picard.
1: Star Trek Picard which, which, on yes. CBS All Access? Which
0: will be the first time... Since... 2002. What, is it is it 2002 or is it 2003? 2002 was, yeah, was oh Star God. Trek Nemesis. That was ugly. Everything about that was ugly. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the first time that they've wanted to really to tell a story about the future, except for if you include small flashbacks in Star Trek 2009 of Spock, like, <laughs> running, right. running away from stuff. I've got That's to say,
1: the, the nerd in me kind of applauds their willingness to incorporate those elements into Star Trek Picard. Well, the the very premise that sets up the J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie is Spock getting shot back in time after the destruction of Romulus. And now the destruction of Romulus is now in the Canon prime timeline. and and I, well, I don't think there's Star Trek is
0: like, I mean, they can, they've obviously you can, they can throw away Canon with the best of them. I feel like the continued, the continued hand of kurtzman since he's a producer on this on this mm. one as well says they're going to keep elements not just sort of visual elements i think a lot of the for for me a lot of the things that have persisted past the abrams movies have been like the way they rotate cameras or lens flares or sound effects or something, those have been the things that have sort of persisted. But then and that's don't... a
1: stylistic choice of yeah. just television in general.
0: Well, no, I'm saying that the Discovery has picked up a lot of the same sort of visual styling of the J.J. Abrams verse, of the Kelvin verse movies um, to... I guess in their in their mind, they want to create visual continuity between the new movies and the new series, and not the old series because they hate the way the old series looks. Apparently, it's too boring for them.
1: You're talking about the 1966 series
0: or Next Generation or okay. anything that followed after there. They really dis they really dislike current the current regime really dislikes the way that it looks the the way the creatures and characters look and the way the camera work was because it's too traditional and they they believe that the success of Star Trek 2009. I think is doing in large
1: part to its visual style, and I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's that's true at all. I think that yeah. the thing that makes it, makes it a success is that it's attached to a very popular IP yeah. that goes back 50 years and has a lot of affection. I mean, it has a built-in very, very passionate fan base. And yeah. that's the reason that Star Trek could go off the air for 10 years, you know, minus an animated series here or there. And come back with a major motion picture, because I can't think of anything. I mean, you look at, like, Firefly. Firefly was even a flop TV show. Right. <laughs> and, I mean, it was one that most people who love Firefly love it post-cancellation. Yeah. Most people who love that show loved it after it was no longer going concern. It was just a DVD box that's, set. That's right. That is, I'm sure this is not the only example of that, but to me,
0: that's one of the true examples of... Um, the fans got, bringing it back. Get, no, got really popular as a DVD.
1: Yeah, and that's the thing. Star Trek too. I mean, not not Star Trek, comma T O O, not Star <laughs> Trek: The Wrath of Khan, but Star Trek 2, That's how it got there. It was reruns yeah. of of the television program, is what you know created the sort of momentum that created these um, these fan conventions, which later. Made, you know, the sort of speaking tours that Roddenberry would go on. And pretty soon they're like, hey, there's enough here. Maybe we can make a movie. Well, first they wanted to make a television series again. Right. And then that got turned into a movie. I think Star Wars probably accelerated that a bit. Of course. And um, looking at that, now this is the point I was sort of making about Firefly, which is that Firefly was on the, off the air, what was it, like a 2002-ish series? I think it was 2001. 2001 2002 somewhere around the early aughts yeah uh the movie came out in 2005 i believe yeah that's not a long time star trek made it past like (laughs) the actual
0: decade mark i'm gonna say a little bit of that might be of how much of the doldrums that the mid-2000s were for film in general
1: and not only not only that, that, that i mean that's
0: that's why serenity got made yeah um because there was just nothing going on in movies. It's
1: kind of crazy that they made that movie because yep. it's I mean you can think of a lot of of um, of canceled television series that are beloved by people but most of them would most likely get a Netflix reboot rather than a theatrical release. Now nowadays. they w- yeah, now they would for sure. It's kind of crazy that they got a, a theatrical release and an ability to sort of wrap up their series. I mean that most don't get that. Um, the only other thing I can think of in recent
0: would be like deadwood since they got like oh we didn't finish the story we'll give it a feature
1: length not theatrical but a feature length end cap to the story yeah i think that may be the only one because i mean they were talking about the deadwood movie for how long now yeah i mean it was 10 years 10 years yeah i was of the the persuasion that that was never coming out yeah me too i was just like you know they they keep saying that it's kind of the the same thing with community six seasons and a movie. Um. I didn't think that was ever going to happen. I didn't think anyone was going to make the Deadwood movie. I thought that people were going to move on to other projects. And, you know, you have people like Ian McShane, who is always in something and he just doesn't have the time yes you can
0: call hellboy 2019 something it is something (laughs) but i mean he
1: got his paycheck and i guarantee you the scenes that he's in are better because it's him. of course uh he appeared in an episode of game of thrones and was incredible in it (laughs) because he's always incredible that was that
0: that his performance his appearance rather is emblematic of Part of the laundry laundry pile of criticism, which was, how could you do so little with such a good actor? They yeah. least, like dead within twenty minutes of him for his on what, the screen. What if
1: somebody said It's like Yolo, but with Yolo spelt with an e at the end. They said you only live one episode. But yeah, there's a. I think the same thing happened with the guy who played Mike the Cleaner. Um, God, Jonathan Banks. Thanks. Yeah. On the pilot episode of The Expanse, he shows oh, up and yeah. dies too. So. Yolo yes. runs uh, deep. <laughs> Yolo. But yeah, it's it's interesting. So you're a bit nervous about Picard. I'm, I'm a
0: bit nervous about Picard because, and not for all the, I mean, you haven't seen Discovery, so no. any of the stuff that, any of sort of the baggage, the internet baggage, is just something that you've probably seen through osmosis seem third hand now I would imagine
1: I can sort of hear it through the wall using a glass but I can't I'm not specifically seeking it out to listen right the stuff that I hear about about discovery is that the second season lightens up that uh, the actor who plays Captain Pike is really good Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the stuff I see is like the makeup looks good I'm still not a fan of the design of the discovery because it was one of those it's I like the idea Of the design of the discovery, (laughs) where it's based on an old illustration from Star Trek Phase Two of a reboot of the Enterprise. Right. I don't like that illustration of (laughs) the boot of the Enterprise, but it's the same thing. It has that kind of same vibe of you know like a uh, Macquarie drawing from Star Wars, and you know that's cool. I mean, I'm I'm fine with that. I'm just I I'm not a big fan of that design, and you know what? That's a thing I can move past if I like yeah, the show. And I
0: largely have moved past stuff like that. I I just haven't. I still I have all of the I have DVR. I have all of the um, DVR in air quotes. I thought you were say deviant art. <laughs> deviant art. Yes, I've got all the deviant art for Discovery, and whoa. <laughs> um, uh, but I haven't got past like I think there's 12 or 14 episodes, and I haven't got past like six or seven, and it's just. My enthusiasm for wanting to keep going keeps getting quashed. I'll spend some time to try to finish one, and then there'll there'll be countless other movies that I'll be like, mm, but I want to I wanted to watch this movie, and I can't get there. So my my nerves about Picard is that you'll feel it, the same way, and you don't want to feel that way yes, about Picard. It'll, it'll borrow too much of the DNA from the Discovery stuff, which is mm. that I can't even pinpoint why it doesn't why it doesn't excite me as much because I think there's a lot to like about it. There's a lot that's sort of like. They really started off in a really bad footing on that. They really were really very wobbly. Oh, how so? Um I think it was a I think it was was really difficult for them to have the POV character be the Michael Burnham character who's like the first mu- mutineer or okay. something. Um have that be the PO- POV character. The POV character is like a human raised on Vulcan. Mm-hmm. Um. Well, no. Let's not spoil anything for you. You'll you'd know that in the first three minutes of the first episode. Oh, I've read some spoilers. Okay. Um. And my issue is is that it starts. It started off from the very beginning of having the crew treat each other in not in ways where people in Starfleet should treat one another. And there's a sort of a story reason for that. But it, the the distaste of that never seemed to go away. Like you know, there was the the thing that is about uh TNG and beyond. Something crazy happens to to a member of the crew, and that person goes immediately goes to the captain or goes to another person and said, hey, this totally bonkers crazy thing happened to me. Um, and then everyone on board goes, okay, and then we'll figure out how to do it. When in any other story, they'd be like, you're crazy. You should go to the doctor. Like, We're not going to listen to you. The Star Trek strength is that... They believe each other? Yeah, if they're in Starfleet, they're like, I've got your back. Even though this insane thing that you said has happened, I'm going to believe... I'm going to believe you and we're going to keep going to try to make sure we solve it or whatever. Um, I didn't feel that at all. In fact, it was like lots of crew members bickering with each other. Um, And it tends to get better, but it also tends to have the trappings of serialized prestige TV, which is like it's all one sort of long meandering story and then they
1: kill off characters, and then there's like... But is there any escaping that? I mean, if we're going to look at how things have sort of changed in television since Star Trek was last on TV regularly, that would have been Enterprise. Um, Enterprise shared uh, part of the timeline, with our timeline, with the... Battlestar Galactica reboot. This is true. And they feel like television shows from a different era. Yeah. That Enterprise went from like 2001 to 2005, I believe. That sounds right. Yeah. And Battlestar Galactica was like 2003 to 2010. Um, that was kind of a definite, you know, there was definitely a, a change in television where the serialized peak TV kind of golden age of television was happening. Things like Breaking Bad, things like, you know, Battlestar, mm-hmm. Lost. The idea that there's this big serialized story that's shot like a movie mm-hmm. and Star Trek still looked like a television show that still had that sort of 90s TV look to it and right. 90s TV execution of it, that it was shot like a television show. And I can imagine that you have this big space of time where you're not making new Star Trek television shows and the world has kind of moved on stylistically and. This is true, and it's and it, that change would have happened if Star Trek hadn't gotten canceled. But it probably would have happened gradually, and now it just feels like you're hitting a wall. This is true, and and there's you're right. There is no escaping su- a large
0: majority of that influence because I think people who are showrunners and producers and writers are now only interested in doing that sort of that sort of project. Looks I think, like a movie, like yeah. The
1: Sopranos. Looks like a movie. Yeah. It doesn't look like a TV show with three walls and a and a laugh track. And my not that, not that Star Trek n- ever did. N- no, but. no. I, I
0: I guess the thing would be say is I know that some of that's inevitable for Picard. Some of my, my gripes are inevitable. I know that some of the things that were are about the aesthetics that are like, they're like, I thought that was novel for J.J. J. Abrams to sort of introduce that as a Star Trek thing. But I think that it doesn't work as well for it being a TV show, which is doesn't tell a story as fast. Um, Star- and I, and- this is the thing, though. Does Star Trek just work better as a TV show than a movie? I, I yeah, I mean I, I mean, I think it does because there's only so many times you can remake The Wrath of Khan. Yeah. Um, and the it's further there- away you get from doing, you know, like, look the difference between um, Nemesis and Insurrection. Whereas Insurrection is about is, even though it has some Wrath of Khan elements because there's a bad guy. Mm-hmm. Um, F. Murray Abraham plays a bad guy. Um, I just rewatched that recently. It's it's worthy of doing a single serving selection because I think it deserves it deserves more credit than it got. Is that insurrection ends up looking a hell of a lot more like a regular episode and less mm-hmm. like a huge big? There's a bad guy who wants revenge, and then he takes the Enterprise along with them on this crazy battle, basically. Yeah, um, which almost all of the, you know, all, almost all of the Star Trek movies after Wrath of Khan have had that as an element to it. Um, when you get to insurrection it it's less movie like and so there's less of a reason for it to be a movie um but it feels like star trek it and does feel like star trek
1: i think that we've had star trek as you know complementary tracks of television and movies for a while like if you watch the next generation you have an episode like data's day that that's where it's just you know lieutenant commander data going about what an average day on the enterprise is like you'd never make that as a theatrical movie But those are the things that I like, is that you'd also get something like the best of both worlds, which could be a theatrical movie. Mm -hmm. Um, The problem Mm -hmm. is, is that, you know, I think Star Trek works best when you have both approaches happening. That you have a story where uh, you can deal with a diplomatic crisis, or there's just a problem with the holodeck and Captain Picard, you know, and a couple crew members get turned into children. (laughs) That's not enough to, you know... Uh, you know, there's a lot of those ones. And I think Star Trek tends to work best and the world building tends to work best when you have a mix of big, exciting things and slow things. And you get that with television. Battlestar Galactic is another example. Yep, I agree. That a lot of the character building, a lot of the world building, a lot of the stuff that makes those big, exciting moments really land because you see these, mo- these characters in these smaller moments. And I think that Star Trek returning to TV, what, even if it's a streaming service, is like the best move they can make. Yeah, I agree. And uh, my hope is is that as a,
0: I mean, it looks like they're gonna, they've already decided to renew Picard for a second season. Mm-hmm. So, fingers crossed, Sir Pat Stew survives for another year. But he's has he blown. ever
1: disappointed?
0: I mean, I, he's been in some middling movies, but you know, uh, he, we just look at Logan as the example. And I just read, I literally just read a story. 2 days ago that confirmed the same thing that was rolling around in my head which was it was because of Logan that he decided to do this.
1: Oh that Be- he thought it was worth to revisit yes. a character at a later time of their life cuz
0: he was he was over it. He was done with it after Nemesis. And he was like I don't it's, it's done. We can retire the character or whatever. But obviously Logan was said that there's still a lot that can there's still a lot to say about having one last go of this character and giving this character not a not ignoble send-off, you know?
1: Yeah, that that same thing happened with Captain Kirk, though. Remember, well, we can make a lot of arguments about how (laughs) Captain Kirk was sent off. uh, But, I mean, if you can talk about Captain Kirk being the lead character in something, uh, Star Trek V was not a great movie. Uh, There's things in it that I like. I think the problem with it is not the concept so much as the execution of it. Right. Um, But it's not a great place to leave that character in the retirement. It it would have
0: been a terrible last Star Trek movie for sure.
1: Where uh, Star Trek six, I think is a great place to end that character. And it does feel like, okay, there's definitely an element of Kirk is older in this movie. Kirk is at the end of his career and he gets thrown into a situation where he feels like somebody from the past. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't like being somebody from the past, and he gets one last chance to be a hero in a good movie. And I think with Captain Picard, we have you know nemesis, and that's not the way I want to walk away from the next generation no. characters. No, and I, I,
0: I imagined he, his, he probably thought to himself, um, "This is going downhill fast, right?" Like he's thinking the quality of these are going downhill. Paramount's not going to pay for them anymore, so. You know we're done. We're done. We're the whole project is done, and I think I've said I don't. I don't think I've said on a fun size episode, and I certainly didn't get a chance to say this when we talked about DS9 last year, which we had the right people assembled. Is that uh, I'm opti- I'm I'm cautiously optimistic, and the reason why is I believe that there are two main threads that seem to align with what I've what the very little that I've seen and read about it so far. That if you're talking about Picard being in being an elderly. You know what he's like—a ninety-something years old, or, or hundred-something years old—but he's in the Federation, so he looks like a seventy-year-old man. Um, the things that he would have left un, basically unresolved in his life, if you take, if you ex, uh, extrapolate from what happened at the end of Nemesis, one obviously is Data's dead, um, and there's B4, so presumably there's like a a Star Trek Katra resurrection storyline that's there. The second is the Borg. Because Picard made a decision that effectively, uh, in the Alpha Quadrant at least, disrupted in the lives and the civilization of an uncountable number of Borg who are disconnected from the hive because he told his crew to create a virus and put, stuck it into Hugh and then basically destroyed them. And you see them come back one more time, and the, but they're these sort of lost people that have no home. Um, So that could, that's definitely something that he could wrap up that I could see them doing a story, a story that's not just a mindless action story, but a story that has something else to it where you can show some compassion towards people who are regarded as enemies, which is always a fantastic piece of Star Trek. And the last bit is um, the Romulus, Vulcan Romulus reunification thing, Um, because the sort of the send off for Spock in Next Generation was what's Ambassador Spock doing with his time? when we run into him last in the, uh, in the sort of Kelvin universes is that Spock is still there trying to crank out Vulcan Romulan reunification and Picard sharing a special bond with Spock is probably like, well, this is also one of the things I'd love to be able to do. And then Romulus gets blown up and Spock disappears. Yes. So the, his, the ability for that to happen in, in any way that they would have dreamed is gone because Romulus is gone and Romulans are now a diaspora. Right. Um, and I guess wait, our Vulcans are only a diaspora in the Kelvin timeline. Yeah, presuming. Vulc- I assume that Vulcans
1: yeah. still exist. It doesn't yeah. look like things that changed in in that Splinter universe actually affect them at all. No, it's it's weird.
0: I, I'm just saying that those that there are some three really big, really interesting things to be told about a character that don't have to be have a lot of re- absurd fan service plugged into that can be not just a standard sort of action-adventure plot, but have some more thought-provoking things to chew on, and
1: that excites me. Yeah, I think I I love Patrick Stewart as Jean-Luc Picard. He's, I've, I've really found in the last few months that Star Trek The Next Generation is a real comfort food for me. Yeah. That I, you know, if I just want to watch something... I put on an episode of TNG on Netflix and what I wish Netflix would do. And this is the thing. If anyone from Netflix who programs it or whatever listens, a random button would be really kind of cool. Yeah. Sometimes I don't, I don't want to have to go through it and go, okay, I've seen that scene that scene that scene that. (laughs) So I don't go through the same episodes over and over again. And I can also revisit something I haven't seen in forever. There's a kind of, kind of a beauty in not being able to choose, but Star Trek, the next generation and particularly Picard is something that just kind of makes me feel good. Yeah. And I think that he's a character that is sort of unlike characters that are being created as sort of sci-fi protagonists now. And to sort of revisit that character would be kind of cool. And I yeah. think and uh, and also a positive representation
0: of the future, which yeah. it, which it's, you know, this is we have an allergy to right now and we need more of it. I mean, we need we need people to be able to envision a future that isn't just utter catastrophe for everyone because shouldn't we have a future that isn't utter catastrophe so yeah. let's let's start working towards it and if we have to make our if we have to start by making people's imaginations make that a possibility then that's a great place to
1: start i i worry that a lot of writers look at the possibility of things being kind of okay i mean you can still have a crisis in the middle of that right obviously star trek would not exist if things didn't happen and the crew of the enterprise didn't go to respond to it right but it's like i look at this the start the star wars prequel saga or not prequel saga the sequel Mm -hmm. trilogy that just finished recently Mm -hmm. and you have the new republic but then you blow it up right away and i wonder if there's and this isn't just throwing this at J.J. Abrams and the people doing doing the Star Wars movies. But just in general, the idea that do we think that the government being the good guys (laughs) is not a a place that you can build stories from? I worry that a little bit that we think, well, no, we have to destroy everything or we have to reveal it to be secretly corrupt. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, a lot of the way the Federation is done in a lot of the Kelvinverse movies has been... Um, the oh, bad no, guys, secret fascists are running the Federation. Yeah, that they, they there's a bunch <sighs> of warmongers that want to sort of take over and take us to war with the Klingons or whatever. Now,
0: now that wasn't a thinly veiled reference to a political situation at all. No. <laughs> no. But, I mean,
1: we've gotten this a couple times. We've had three Kelvin-verse Star Trek movies, and twice the villain has been a, a commander of, you know, the fa- of, of a Starfleet commander who's gone bad and got militant and hates the fact that they've gone soft. Right. And... You know, I'm just kind of...
0: Uh... It really is disappointing because that was the weakest part of Star Trek
1: Beyond, I think. Yeah. Of, of underwriting Crawl as a character. I think you could, you could... I know how to fix that movie, at least in my head. Mm. Uh, which is that you have to have them find the uh, Franklin earlier on in the movie. And Kirk, who's already in this place where he feels lost, like I don't have a sense of meaning from this work anymore. Right. He should find the logs... Of this captain and start feeling a kinship to this person who also feels out of place. Like, I don't belong here. What am I doing? I used to have purpose. And him kind of going down that rabbit hole. But then, of course, there's a break that has to happen when he realizes this is the bad guy. And at that point, he has to sort of rediscover what it is that he believes and why he believes it. And well, and almost, and also getting close to being seduced by. Yeah.
0: This, this rancor, like right that he, that he, that crawl has that the commander, whatever his name was, that would basically says, "Well, fuck this project." Yeah, yeah.
1: like we don't see, um, we, you know, having those things where he's not full on crawl yet, and in right. these in these log entries, and then what ends up stopping the thing at the end, and this is the part that is very to me Star Trek is instead of, and I have the same complaint about Wonder Woman in the third act too, which mm-hmm. is that these are movies where they shouldn't be resolved with a big cgi fight they should be resolved with a speech like i think that kirk should appeal to crawl and find that part of him that's still in there and still believes in something and it changes crawl's mind and then crawl sacrifices himself yeah. to stop his own plan right and that would be honestly i think that would be
0: that was the expectation i had in the theater being, being the fact that i was in i was watching a star trek movie and watching a movie, a sort of latter latter days Star Trek movie that felt a lot like Star Trek. Like mm-hmm. up up until that point, I was like, "There's a lot here that I'm seeing that I have not seen in years." Oh, I lo- um, I love Beyond, and I I do too. And I and, and I think I think their choice to make Kral die and then Kirk save them in a sort of a traditional action cliche was a subversion. I think that they thought that the audience would expect him to remember. I'm a Starfleet officer. What am I doing? Yeah. Um. And Kirk to be able to sway him. I think they, I think the, the screen, I think Simon Pegg, who was the screenwriter, I think he was doing a subversion of what he, everyone should think the ending should be. However, the ending ended up being, like I said, pretty well a standard cliche for an action movie. So yeah. And that, that
1: disappoints me a little bit. Yeah. But I think that same thing is true of, of Wonder Woman as it is of Star Trek Beyond, which is a very good movie that I think kind of falls apart in the third act. Mm -hmm. And I would have liked to see them subvert it because when you have, and Wonder Woman, a lot of it is that Wonder Woman is a character who's sort of a stranger in a strange world who there are multiple voices telling her how she should be and how she should act. And I always think that in those scenarios, the hero needs to come up with a third better way that sort of tosses those aside and says, okay, I get what you're saying, but this is better. And she almost does that. Um, Like, she refuses to listen to the idea of you can't save everyone, so why even try answer? I love that. Yeah. But I think it should have been the same thing where the... And I'm kind of ripping off Sandman with this, Hmm. but what if Ares was like destruction in Sandman? Hmm. What if he hasn't done this stuff for a couple hundred years, and he's just standing back and sort of silently watching and just going... Yeah, well, can I... I'm obsolete. <laughs> right. They're killing each other. <laughs> the The moment where she, she kills a, a proto-Nazi and the war is still fighting because that's just not how it goes, that people aren't fighting because we're brainwashed, we're fighting because we're fighting and we're human. That's a cool moment, but I would have gone a little further with it with With uh, that actor, just I think it's David Thewlis? Yes, it's
0: Thewlis. Yeah. Just
1: going, I haven't done anything <laughs> in centuries. I haven't right. done any of this. This is all them. And I would have had a moment, that same kind of moment, where the villain would have not been Ares. He would have just walked away and said, you know, I no. Instead of a CGI fight with Wonder Woman, I would have gone back to Dr. Poison. And I would have had that moment where, again, this is the same twist as I'm saying for Beyond, is she appeals to her humanity. That obviously Dr. Poison is sort of written and it's sort of implied that she's a wounded person, someone Mm -hmm. who's been hurt. And what if Wonder Woman appeals to her with a compassion that she doesn't get from anyone else. Right. And it moves her to sacrifice herself to stop this horrible thing that she started. And I think that there's something to that because it not only sets Wonder Woman aside from these other characters in her own movie, it sets her aside from every other superhero. This is true. And I think that's the thing that makes her special. And I would have loved to see the movie end that way. Well, there is also another through line for me.
0: That sounds brilliant, and I think... um... The thing that I probably remember the most vividly, and it was, for me, it was one of those stand-up-and-clap moments in a movie, which is, they're in No Man's Land, and the machine gun starts up, um, and then Wonder Woman uses her brace I think she uses her bracelets and her super speed to basically deflect all of the bullets. Like, to basically just deflect the bullets that are raining down on the... Uh, Am I thinking of the right I, section? She, she that, has a shield in that moment too. Oh yeah, because, because there was that moment, or maybe it was foiling the. Now I'm getting things mixed up in my head because I seen it once in the theater. Maybe it was foil foiling the heist at the beginning because there's a she's oh, doing that. You're right. talking
1: about uh, I think Justice
0: League. Maybe I'm thinking about she that. She does.
1: She does stop a robbery at the beginning of Justice I, League.
0: I I what I or, or maybe they're both had the same effect, which was no. This is definitely like no man's land with the, with the machine gun is. The, this, I hate bullets. and you've seen Superman do this before, which is like, you know, like having a sheer hatred for the idea of a bullet being shot because of the consequences of what those bullets could do because Superman's never going to rip a gun out of someone's hands, turn it around, and shoot people, right? That's just not him. The type of the type of strength that he re- that he represents is the strength to stand up and say, no, we're better than this, right? And that there was a part of Wonder Woman where I was like where I was like, oh, this is a repudiation of the sheer insanity of the meat grinder of just being like we're gonna create these machines that throw out hot lead traveling close to the speed of sound in in such a rapidity that no humans could survive and her her idea is like I'm gonna stop this. I'm gonna stop this because the bullets are the the bullets
1: are the enemy, right? Yeah, and I think the com- I love that the compassion element of Wonder Woman is a part that I think makes her really special. Like. Yeah. There's bits where she sees somebody who has a crying child and she wants to go help that person. That's just who she is. And I think to play that up and make it her defining attribute is always where I would go. And other people go, no, no, we have to choose. We have to choose who we just let die. And her outright rejecting that and yeah. saying, no, we don't get to choose. We will save everyone because she's a fucking superhero.
0: What was it? The I caught a little little t- Twitter snippet that someone was. The headline was that uh, Warner Brothers doesn't n- n- know how to make Superman relevant for audiences, and then, uh, I don't. It was it. It could have been.
1: I've I've seen it those. It could have things. been Neil
0: Gaiman. It could have been Neil Gaiman. I think it was who just said he doesn't need to be made relevant. He needs to be inspiring, and I was yeah. like, well, that's. That might be hard for a writer to do. I don't know how, how, how easy it is for a writer to do,
1: but that's definitely how I would want to see a superhero. But it's bizarre because we know this stuff works. We just don't understand people that we think that we're super, you know, with it and postmodern and all this. And we like a lot of, we like to sort of dig things apart and deconstruct our heroes. And, but we also really love, you know, Paragon heroes. And mm-hmm. we like to think that we don't, but we do. That the person who's just better than everyone, but doesn't lord over everyone, someone who's just a good person. I mean, we got this with Steve Rogers. When I saw uh, Infinity War in theaters, you know, the scene where um, Captain America shows up behind that train Mm -hmm. and steps out of the shadows. Uh, My theater went apeshit because it's fucking Steve Rogers. They like, oh, shit, Captain America is Captain America is not edgy. No. And no, he, what he is, is he's a really cool dude and he's he's a paragon. And the thing is, audiences love Captain America. They don't need him to get darkened. They don't need him. And you look at something like um, Winter Soldier. We've talked about this before, the element of him being the anti-Jack Bauer, which is that you don't darken Captain America. You throw him into a dark, edgy world and you have him reject it. And not mm. only reject it, but by him injecting himself into it changes the mind of all the people around yeah. him and makes them better people, makes them want to be better people. Yeah, that that is precisely what I want from a Picard
0: show as well. He is that kind of paragon. He is that that kind of a hero where, um, like, I would want him to be my boss, right? I would I would love to be a part of an organization where someone who he takes every opportunity to m- try to make
1: people better around him and expects more out of them than they'd s- expect out of themselves, you know? But he also doesn't, he doesn't throw people away. No. Like you can see it in the episode with Barkley that introduces Barkley for the first time. He's like, no, he's part of the crew. You will find a, made- a way to make this work. It's funny. I was rewatching, I got the box set of TNG on Blu-ray
0: for Christmas. So I was, I was uh, there. Effectively, they're exactly the same episodes that you would see on, Netflix, but I'm bracing myself for the day for which CBS is like, yoink, and pulls all those Star Trek content off of Netflix and moves oh, them over to God. CBS All Access. I've been waiting for Because it will happen. It will. It will happen. Yeah,
1: I've been nervous about that because I love all of the Star Trek material on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's kind of my go-to default setting mm-hmm. is... Well, I'll watch TNG. I mean, I, I, I think Deep Space Nine is my favorite Star Trek series, but it's really more of a project. It's like if mm. I want to watch Battlestar Galactica, I'm not right. going to watch a random third season episode. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's, a, it's a project to go, I'm going to do a rewatch of the entire series. The episodic nature of, of the next generation lets me just kind of jump around. Mm-hmm. And uh, once it moves away from, from Netflix, it's going to be really different. don't want it to...
0: But I I watched Lower Decks, so the season. That's a great episode. It's a fantastic episode, and it is the it is the one time because I was watching it with my six year old son, and uh, he's bringing. So there's Sato, who is the Bajoran ensign who becomes who is basically drafted into kind of a clandestine mission with a defecting. Cardassian her her ra- her races mortal enemies. Um, and you know from this is one of those few times when there's actually like a real deep cut of a character that has existed in another episode.
1: Yeah, she's in the episode the the one where uh, Wesley Crusher basically but not really gets kicked out of, of yeah. Starfleet Academy for being an asshole.
0: <laughs> she's she's part of this group that that someone died and they lied about it because they were all flashy assholes and she gets this posting. She works hard and gets this posting on the Enterprise as a very very junior member of the officer staff and she's brought into Picard's office because she's being this promotion time and she's being brought in about what she's going to do. And it is the harshest Picard has ever been on any Starfleet officer in the entire series. It's hard to watch because he he is because he's carrying with him Like I, you know, I don't know if I can trust you. How can I, how could I trust someone who covered up the death of a fellow Starfleet cadet because you wanted to protect the reputation of some guy, of some Tom Paris, essentially. Um, and uh, Tom Paris really should have been that he, guy. They should have done that. I got they just didn't want to pay the writer. I guess. Ah. Um, but uh, but and he, he gives her a dressing down in a way that is reserved only for like Q.
1: <laughs> God, it hurts to watch because yeah. it feels like your dad is yelling at you. Right.
0: But in the end, you uh, you realize that um, he's doing it because he needs to know how tough she can be. Like, he needs to know if she can prove, if she has the self-confidence um, to be able to stick with something and be in a dangerous situation.
1: And she that does. He, that he could be very well sending her to her death. Yeah. And he, you know, it's important what's happening. And it's, oh, God, that episode is painful in a lot of ways just for that. Also, that episode makes me really love Worf. <laughs> yeah. Because uh, Worf is a great boss. I think I I think we've talked about this before the people the managerial style of different <laughs> TNG characters and I think that episode is a big part of of what shaped it is you get to see these characters that are you're used to seeing as your leads being the new leads bosses right and oh my god Riker oh it's it, clearly it,
0: it, I from that episode cuz I didn't remember this whole thing that there was a subplot around it's like the C plot the D plot around Beverly Crusher and Nurse Ogawa Mm -hmm. Um, and she's up for promotion but it seems like working for um, this Crusher is like the easiest one because she's like she's everyone's friend. Oh, she, she seems like a great boss. Yeah, she's not, there's no way she's going to get mad at, at, at anything at all. And she's like, she's wanting to know about your love life. She's wanting to make things easier if you want to. She's She's got the kind of boss that could be like, do you need any time off? Take as much time as you need.
1: But she also takes her boss, her, her job super seriously. Yeah. And that and that's the thing you love because in a lot of ways, Crusher is kind of in almost every conference room scene is kind of the 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 moral voice. Mm-hmm. The sort of heart of the these characters who makes a compassionate choice. You it 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 actually it mirrors the way she manages other officers. Yeah, Worf is the one which was such a delightful surprise. Is that Worf is somebody that I think is probably terrifying to you at first? <laughs> that he probably rides you a little bit hard. But he is so fucking loyal to the people underneath him yep. that when they when they are good to him, he is good to them. Uh, there are moments in that episode because I believe Sato, is, she serves under him. I believe she's a security officer yep. yeah, she is. who wants to uh, be promoted up to tactical. Yep. And uh, Worf, despite the fact that she had that history, defends her constantly when she's not there. Mm-hmm. Two people like Riker and Picard and says, no, she's really good. She's a great officer. And a big part of him doing that sort of like uh, clinging on a keto scene is all about her getting her to stick up for herself because I think she's somebody who's eaten a lot of shit. Well, because it, of the it, shitty decision she it, made. It
0: also mirrors this her sort of Bajoran angle for someone who's born onto a world in, you know, generations long occupation. And so she's been under the boot heel before and risen up and knows like knows well, you do have to stand up for yourself, right? Because you won't survive if you don't.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of interesting. I don't know if they ever talked about it much on on Deep Space Nine, but the thing that sort of separates Man, who wrote that episode, I want to know. That's a it's a good episode, It's really fucking good. Um, the the difference between say Kira and Ro, and I guess Sato is the same thing because at this point in the timeline, I believe, I don't think Deep Space Nine has started yet. At the time, that episode came out for Lower Decks. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's two, two or three years in. Okay, because I think it starts. I think you have that that Bashir crossover in season five. Okay. Okay. And that would have been season one of DS9. So I think you're okay. in season three by the time. Okay. So yeah. I was
1: trying to figure out what is the difference between, because there aren't that many Bajoran members of Starfleet. And if we're no. going to use the example of Nog that it's easier. You need some sort of a sponsor if you're not a citizen of a Federation world. Right, And the difference between Roe and uh, Kira is that Kira, is somebody who was on Bajor during the occupation who saw the ugliest part of it, where I think that Roe was a refugee, that she was somebody that, oh, you just like, oh, thank fucking God, Uh, or thank the prophets, rather. Um, (laughs) You're not on planet. You're not being occupied by this fascist dictatorship and being forced to work in the mines, that you're just kind of left without a home. And you're probably looked down on, and I imagine that there are some people like Roe, like Sato, maybe. I don't know if Sato, I imagine she was... What season was...
0: Three, I think.
1: Three was the one with the... So she was before... before three, or, three or four. So Bejra was still being occupied at that point. Yep. So uh, she she would have to have been a refugee. You'd think so. Somebody who she... So she joined Starfleet to sort of go, I want something solid in my life. Something that I can rely on because I don't have a home and I bet you there's probably a lot of people who resent the Bajorans in that way and the right. way that people tend to treat refugees like shit, even right. in this sort of advanced 24th century utopia. There's the, sort of that.
0: The alien trash of the galaxy. Oh, yeah.
1: It's. Yeah. But. Um,
0: yeah. Man, there was a lot of there's a lot of anti Klingon racism in Star Trek six.
1: Oh, God. They're animals. <laughs> Let them die. Um, I love that. I I also kind of <laughs> love that you see the minute that Kirk says it, you see Shatner have this like regret cross his face. Mm-hmm. Like he's still moving to the next subject, but it's still like he stung himself saying it. Um, <laughs> I kind of, I just love that acting choice. Um, there's a, I, I don't, I don't, I think people shit on Shatner a lot. I think he's a good actor and I don't know why people don't appreciate him more. It It is also the case that he by, I don't know when.
0: Star Trek Six came out in, the like, 91 One. or something, right? So yeah. he'd had 20-plus years to um, play that, 25 years to play that character. Um, it is the case that if you are an actor as a profession, and you've been playing the same role for 25 years,
1: hopefully you don't sound the same as Kirk does in the first season of no. Star Trek. But, I mean, there's, yeah. there's great moments with him as Kirk. I mean, um, there's the moment where David dies in Star Trek Three and yeah. he stumbles back and falls off his chair. Mm-hmm. That is really good. Yeah. Um, the eulogy for Spock still is makes it, me tear up. It's amazing, yeah. And But I think the best, my favorite Kirk moment, I don't know if I've talked about this on the show or not, but it's the moment in Wrath of Khan. Is it
0: the moment where he makes uh, eggs? <laughs>
1: no, no. Uh, in Wrath of Khan, there's a bit where he has to put his reading glasses on in front of the crew mm-hmm. while they're coming up with their plan to shut down Khan's shields. And he just goes, damn and he just kind of he just kind (laughs) of screw it and puts some on and i kind of love that that moment where he just kind of has to drop vanity yeah because he needs to do this and he doesn't like doing it but i just maybe it's just the fact that you know i hit age 39 and realized i needed reading glasses and that was not fun (laughs) because i have to carry this case around in case i want to read and i really like reading um (laughs) <laughs> ah, yeah, it just and so I saw that movie again and I was like, oh, and it jumped out at me. It had never jumped out at me before. Uh, and I, I think, again, we've talked about this. There is a, a treat in, and you're going to see this with Picard, there's a treat in getting to watch your characters grow old. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something you don't get, especially sort of a canon old, which is right. not something you get with a lot of characters that, like Superman is always going to be in his 30s. Batman is always going to be in his 30s. You can do a Dark Knight Returns or a Kingdom Come where you make them a little older and give them great temples or even um, I think the best thing we got from that is Earth 2 from DC Comics up until the 1980s that there was this alternate Earth where the 1940s versions of these characters had allowed to age and that had moved on with their life where Batman married Catwoman and had a kid who became the Huntress and Superman and Lois Lane got married, and they aged, and it's not something you saw. It was kind of kind of a treat to let characters sort of move on where uh, a lot of characters living on Earth One, which was sort of the Silver Age DC Universe, were kind of in a perpetual you know, second act of their life. And I think there's a treat to getting to watch characters age and change, and we're going to get to see that with Picard. Yeah, and then we can only hope that it's a... Well written, (laughs)
0: well written follow up, and you know pieces of it. I think were guided by Patrick Stewart, and that also is a little bit like. Well, I don't think Patrick Stewart's a writer, so
1: but he's done enough drama that I bet you he's he knows a good script, right? And he knows. I (laughs) I mean, there's there's, some of the stuff that yeah he was in. He narrated Ted, but (laughs) uh, I mean that's not a great movie. He he was the
0: poop emoji.
1: (laughs) Oh God, yeah apparently uh jordan peele was offered that job (laughs) and i think i read somewhere where he said that was when he just said you know what maybe i shouldn't act anymore (laughs) (laughs) oh my god the poop emoji if there was ever uh an an exhibit a if we were gonna put hollywood on trial for just making (laughs) shit i mean you remember that old mr show sketch with coupon the movie yeah where it's like this is the most popular coupon. Why don't people want to go see this movie? And there's like a class action lawsuit where the people who made coupon the movie sue the United States and win and now they're all required to go to one showing of coupon the movie but the emoji movie is coupon the movie it it's just the dumbest shit and I'm oh like how god. did this fucking get made? oh my god why it's just it's it's so fucking stupid that that exists.
0: The paycheck. I'm sure he wanted the paycheck. It, yeah. If, if you are, I mean, imagine this. You are a well-respected actor. You live in Hollywood. It's a. It's you're knighted. A, it's a 35-minute drive to Fox Studios or whatever to get and, in a and booth and pretend yeah. to be poop. And then, and then you're you have exactly like seven lines to read, and they're like, "We will cut you a check for fifty thousand dollars if you'll come in and read seven lines." And I'm sure he's like. Yes.
1: So who do you think felt the more uh, humbled and embarrassed by the voice acting gig? Do you think it was Patrick Stewart playing an emoji poop? (laughs) Or do you think it was Orson Welles in Transformers the movie? (laughs) I, I I think it's probably Orson Welles
0: because clearly Patrick Stewart has to have a sense of humor about himself whereas I don't think Orson Welles did. Oh, I think he was he was clearly just doing that
1: for the paycheck. He's doing that for the paycheck. It's weird because I kind of I can laugh at Orson Welles in those moments, but I ain't wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's a fucking genius. Uh and a, as much as it, Transformers 85
0: does not sort of map to what Orson Wells means for cinema, just mm-hmm. as a as an as a you know as a creative force that changed cinema. Transformers is a good movie.
1: And yeah, <laughs> it's a really it's, good movie for a movie that has about as cynical an origin as you can imagine. Which is, hey, we want to we want to make new toys for the toy line, so we're gonna kill the old toys and make some new toys. And uh, yeah, we'll kill that Optimus Prime guy. Nobody's gonna be upset about that. <laughs> <laughs> and it's. <laughs> That is fucking weird. They they really they botched it. And then there's the whole story with G.I. Joe, the movie, the same thing was in production at oh, the right. same time. Right. And they thought they could just kill the toy. And they they backpedaled real fast <laughs> after the death of Optimus Prime. Uh but it it's weird. I mean, Transformers the movie is aside from Bumblebee, the best Transformers movie. I'd say that. I'd say so. I it it's it's watchable. It's strange. It has, a, it has a lot of those qualities that we say about something like Gremlins 2 where or uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, where you just want to explain it to someone to say, oh, yeah. And then there's a part where a bunch of junk robots show up <laughs> and, and Weird Al's Dare to be Stupid starts playing. <laughs> and the head junk robot is voiced by Eric Idle. Right. <laughs> That's a thing that really happens yes. in that movie. <laughs> And it's just, it feels weird. It feels weird to say that that's, the, oh, and there's also a scene at the beginning where the Decepticons attack a spaceship with a couple Autobots that you recognize from the cartoon and gun them down like Sonny Corleone. <laughs> It is fucking. If that, and, if and, those and are humans, it's even
0: worse. Is that even worse? Is that when they die, there's just black smoke that comes out of their eye holes. Yeah, and they collapse
1: in a gray heap of metal. That blue light that usually makes up their eyes goes dark gray, <laughs> and smoke starts coming out, and they just collapse. Oh god. And the last, I think Ironside, the the red van guy, gets killed like execution style. It's like fucking Reservoir Dogs, <laughs> but it's it's crazy because there's this bit where. They're even doing that thing where you do the little, I'm being hit because I'm getting shot 50 times dance mm-hmm. before you collapse. And it's like, if these were organic life forms and you were doing this level of violence, this would be rated R. <laughs> it, was, it is
0: basically like Bonnie and Clyde Transformers. Yes. It's crazy. It's, it's, it is crazy.
1: Why anyone, I don't know. I, It's kind of this bizarre thing that that could exist. We're going to make a children's movie. We're going to violently kill most of the characters. Uh, Starscream is going to get shot. Well, He's going to turn into like black carbon and then crumble. And
0: we're going to show like like entire worlds dying to a giant planet eater, like being digested into a giant robot, like destroying whole worlds. And you can see like, like people getting fuck? dropped into
1: vats and they're getting turned into liquid <laughs> that's moving through this like yes. internal chemistry set of this robot. <laughs> it, is, it is fucking bonkers.
0: I, I think, I mean, we will obviously have to invite Sam Mulvey back because I know how huge of a Transformers fan, he is to talk about it because it's it's up there as to one of my favorite movies. I, I I I'll say this of Transformers the movie is that it is awfully dated, and the soundtrack does no favors. The soundtrack is one of the stronger points of the movie. However, it's so dated, it it's, is it's, so it, fucking dated. It's I amazing. think we could
1: call it a fuck yeah soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, but also, like, how many people? For how many people? Watching Transformers, the movie is the first feature length Japanese animated film they've ever seen. Not, there was Japanese animation that made its way to American television, but that, as far as a movie, a full feature length anim- animated movie where they put the time in, the animators put the fucking time in to make it look good. That's a f- myself included. There was a whole generation of people. That's the first Japanese animated movie they've ever
1: seen. Well, aside from the opening credits to a Transformers show, that's as good as that animation has ever looked for yep. those characters. Yep. And you can sort of see it um, in, when they went back to the regular series. There's also a time jump to the far future year of 2005. Mm. But... <laughs> The, the, angle, the Autobots are all going to see Serenity at the movie theater. It's kind of crazy. Um, <laughs> the other weird, the weird thing with just the Transformers universe in general is, it, are humans the only organic life in the universe that every other planet they go to, if you see alien life of any kind, it's all robotic? That's true. That must be. My God, that's a that's an existential dilemma <laughs> that you have right there, that we are the only organic life in the universe, that everything else is just some kind of robot but then how you again th- those are the only people that you could wipe out. You couldn't have regular humans running and fleeing from their world being destroyed. I that would have been a bit too much to swallow for sure. But I mean again, does that really change anything because at the the heart of this movie is a scene with a robot dying and children everywhere started crying. <laughs>
0: That's the way they wanted Optimus Prime to be remembered.
1: Oh, where his head turns to the side and he turns gray. (laughs) Oh, my God. I I saw that for the first time when I was in my 20s, so it didn't have that impact. But I can only imagine. I got it on VHS because I'd never seen it, but it was a movie that had a rep Mm. of being kind of bloody. And apparently there's a scene, and I've seen it, uh, where someone goes, shit! (laughs) Uh, Which was crazy for the Transformers. But I remember, you know, just... Any kind of profanity in a cartoon was a big deal. I remember um, both The Last Unicorn and Plague Dogs have the word damn in it. (laughs) And that kind of blowing my 10-year-old mind, having a cartoon say damn. Right. But the same thing happened with the Ninja Turtles live-action movie where Raphael's like, damn! (laughs) And it was like, oh, shit. Wait, is Uh, that before or after
0: Vanilla Ice comes out of that movie?
1: Oh, uh, Vanilla Ice is two. Oh, that's right. Uh, this is the first one. It's a more darker, grittier one. The second one got a little bit more of the the, t- the cartoon flavor, but the first one was a bit more like the original comic book. And I think a lot of uh, I I uh, the, uh, the uh the people who do the toys that made us uh show, yeah. uh, did one on um the ninja turtles line and uh, they talk about that and apparently when they made that movie and it was kind of dark and gritty and violent uh a lot of studio people were flipping their fucking shit going (laughs) this is not what the cartoon is like this is not what the cartoon is like and then it came out and it was the biggest like independent release ever and they didn't give a shit anymore because their their money was coming in make them dark and gritty but yeah, I mean, it's not like gory. No. I mean, when you have th- you know three out of four Ninja Turtles have bladed weapons. No, two out of four. Um, right. I mean, you can hit somebody in the head with a nunchuck, and you can plausibly have them just get knocked out. Um, it's a little harder to do that with a katana.
0: <laughs> Radio versus the Martians is hosted by Mike Gillis and Casey Doran. This podcast is recorded in beautiful Valverde in Seattle, Washington. Our chief engineer is Casey Dorn, and our editor is Mike Gillis. Our original theme music is written and performed by James Wetzel. Special thanks to Sam Mulvey, Rob Kelly, James Wetzel, Paul Rue, Tobiah Panshin, Scott Kramer, Kyle Hepworth, and Todd Maxfield-Matsumoto. Please take the time to rate and review our show on iTunes and Stitcher, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. And if you'd like to support the show financially, please consider becoming one of our Patreon subscribers even just a dollar a month gives you access to exclusive episodes and you can always find us online at radio versus
1: YOU!